For WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. I'm Kelly Knoyer. Thank you for joining us. It's changing neighborhoods throughout Wilmington and throughout the country, driving people from their homes and shaping neighborhoods. What is it? Gentrification. But everyone has a slightly different view on what that term means. Gentrification is the degradation or the decline of community in general. People don't feel connected. Businesses don't feel connected. It's just a place that you flock to. It's not necessarily a place that you stay and you call home. In gentrification, I think it's displacement that is sort of caused by investment. And if that was like an algebraic formula, I'd want to solve for one, right? I, I think we agree that we'd want to keep investment. Gentrification is not revitalization. And so sometimes people say, well, that's what happens when you're revitalizing a neighborhood. It, it gets gentrified. And that um, we don't agree with that. We think there can be equitable development that would have um, anti-displacement strategies. Gentrification leads to scared white people. See, I would say it leads to, oh, it just leads to a loss of community, it leads to a loss of, no. Gentrification leads to scared, yet very bold, might be. Uh, nationally, gentrification happens largely as a, as a result of a lack of housing supply. So it's when people that are in higher income brackets move into communities with, with traditionally lower income household or with um, home, sh home ownership or rental opportunities that cost less uh, because there's not enough supply at their level of affordability. And I, I hope it doesn't push those people out who have been there, you know, since the aftermath of the massacre because that is home. Um, and that's, a, you know, a, um, the ugly side of gentrification is, you know, people getting moved around like chess pieces. Gentrification. It's painful, it's dramatic, and it's rolling across downtown Wilmington like an avalanche. That's not hyperbole. That's what data scientist Dante Haywood from Cape Fear Collective says about it. From the north of Wilmington, starting at the Brooklyn Arts District and moving down, there's sort of this momentum of gentrification happening in the city, um, starting from the northern end. Um, it, it hasn't been all at once in every single place, um, but is a process that has been gradually happening um, and speeding up in the latter half of the last decade. Haywood has spent months using census data to truly understand how gentrification is unfolding in Wilmington and the related phenomenon of displacement. In both census tracts on the north side, black residents have declined from the majority of the population to the minority, below 50 percent. We've seen non-black populations increase commensurately, and the average wages earned by residents have shot up. But those gains have not been spread to the existing residents of the community. We'll dig into this data more later, along with discussions I've had with residents and stakeholders in Wilmington. But first, let's talk about the historical context. We didn't arrive at this situation from nowhere, so let's go back in time. In 1898, white supremacists committed a racist coup d'etat in Wilmington, centered on the north side. Cedric Harrison runs a black history tour in Wilmington and said the coup had serious consequences for black entrepreneurs. So before 1898, uh, Wilmington was at a 60% African-American. Majority of the businesses were African-American. Out of the 22 barbershops, 20 of them were black. Um, out of the 16 places to eat, 14 of them were black. And so now 
if you travel around Wilmington now and you see black entrepreneurship, because after 1898, the, the black percentage dropped down to 39%, a lot of the black business owners and successful folks that really was able to circulate the black dollar in the community was pushed out of Wilmington. Still, the North Side remained a stronghold for the black population in Wilmington. Even up until 1990, 99% of the Brooklyn Census tract was black, and the North Side tract from Grace to Market Streets was similar, 86% black. It's only in the last 20 or 30 years that things have really changed. And now, um, because every year people continue to feel like this place isn't welcoming to them and they continue to leave, Wilmington is now almost as low as 15% African-American. Unfortunately, you can't really build a business socially uh, a, a, a build a, a business off of social impact or anything of that nature because the population is just too low for uh, for it to be able to sustain something that um, only culturally catered to a certain population. To learn more about the history of the North Side, I went to the library and I'm going to bring my colleague in here, Camille Mojica, to talk about what I found. Hey, Cammie. Hi, Kelly. So I gave you a brief tour of the Carolina Room in the New Hanover County Library. What do you remember about it? Okay, so it was full of all kinds of archival stuff, like super old newspaper clippings and books. Um, And it feels like the kind of place you'd have to wear white gloves to, like, touch everything. Yeah, it does. But really, you just can't have any pens. No permanent marks on the old documents. But otherwise, you can handle 80-year-old booklets without any concerns. 80 years? Okay, so what do you know about Wilmington in the 1940s? So basically, Wilmington was limited to the downtown area in 1945, bordered by Smith Creek to the north and Greenfield Lake to the south, and ending at 17th Street if you go to the east. Basically, where the city developed before cars became the dominant mode of transportation. Okay, so what happened after that? Well, during World War II, the country needed more housing, like a lot more housing, especially after the decade of stagnant growth that we had during the Great Depression. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, it's just like the housing market after the Great Recession. Now we have a big shortage of housing again. Exactly. So in 1937, the U.S. passed the Housing Act. And then when we got involved in the war, a lot of the public housing was put in places that were strategically important for workers, like Wilmington. It was a major shipbuilding port at the time, so we needed a lot of places to put workers. That's when public housing locations like Hillcrest were built, along with the majority of public housing developments in the city. Hillcrest is literally the same buildings that were built at the time. That's crazy. They're the same. Okay, so what were they like back then? They were kind of slapdash, and they were segregated. Downtown overall became more segregated after the coup, and the north side was almost entirely black, with just a few businesses that were owned by people of other races who were usually immigrants. Okay, so let's move forward. How about the 1960s? So there were a bunch of maps that show, quote, urban blight from like the 1940s and 50s, and that was heavily correlated with the black population that lived there at the time. So in the 1960s and 70s, the federal government acted on it with a policy called urban renewal. Wait, wait, wait. Why did the urban blight overlap with the black population? Well, it could be straight up discrimination by the federal government intended to set those neighborhoods up for redevelopment. More likely, based on news articles I've been able to find, is that there were a lot of areas that were run by slumlords who didn't care about taking care of those rentals and left them to fall apart into worse and worse condition. Black residents couldn't move to other neighborhoods at the time because of racial covenants. And some of the homeowners who were black who owned their own homes couldn't afford to make the repairs themselves because they had depressed wages. So it wasn't necessarily specifically racist federal policy. Okay. 
but it could be racist policy writ large and a racist society that led to those areas being blighted. Hmm, that sounds familiar. So what was the legal practice of excluding black people from buying homes in certain neighborhoods? Yeah, so some neighborhoods in Wilmington were explicitly advertised as white only. There were a few black only suburbs too, but that just meant that the black upper class left downtown at the same time as white flight was happening. So a lot of economic power left downtown at the same time in the 60s and 70s. Okay, so where did that leave Wilmington? Well, by 1970, things were really bad. (laughs) A lot of derelict homes had been knocked down in the north side because of urban renewal, but few were actually replaced. The railroad also got shut down around this time, so the population was declining and there were few job opportunities. This is directly from a neighborhood analysis written in 1975, by the way. That's how they saw it at the time. By the 1980s, the north side was 99.6% black, even as the overall black population of Wilmington was declining. Part of the area was even called Ugly Town. (laughs) Okay, I'm sorry. Ugly Town? It's an ugly nickname, right? Um, The city at the time developed a home repair program with loans, but the city said only 46% of homeowners in the area would be able to afford the program. Okay, but what about the rest of them? I don't know. Maybe that's why there are so many abandoned and derelict homes in the north side to this day. Uh, Let's time skip again. Okay, so the 1990s. Things were similar. There were advocates fighting for a grocery store. Mm, Sounds familiar. Again, yes. Uh, That was a it's it's been a 30 year long fight. Um, Also, 4th Street was in really bad shape at the time. Um, This is one of the major corridors of commercial activity in the north side, and there were a lot of vacant commercial buildings. What had once been like this center of African-American commerce before the coup and even in times that were more prosperous after that, it had just fallen into major decline. Um, By 2000, it was really clear that the north side needed some serious help. The city started making new plans as part of the Vision 2020 plan. What's the Vision 2020 plan? It's kind of a long-ranging planning document. Downtown Wilmington was rough in the early 2000s, and the city wanted to change that. They had entire sections for different neighborhoods, including the waterfront and the north side. What we see in Wilmington today, with major apartments on the riverfront, a revitalized business district downtown, and major apartment buildings and redevelopments on the north side, that all came as part of the 2020 plan. That's, wow, that's nuts. So what were the plans for the north side? Well, I actually talked to Mayor Bill Sappho about it. I first came on city council in 2003. Um, The Northside plan had just been adopted in 2002. I believe former Mayor Peterson was part of that plan with the neighborhood. Actually, the neighborhood had come together. I would say the legacy residents, the people in that particular area that came to the city was a bottoms up plan um, created by the citizens, actually, that came to the city and, and asked the city to make some significant investments to that part of town, being that it was, um, I I believe, neglected for many, many years. Ah, we've finally made it to Mayor Sappho's reign. Yeah. You know, he grew up on the north side. No way, really? Yeah, he grew up on 3rd and Red Cross. A lot of neighbors actually talk fondly about him because of that, or they at least remember him personally. Um, Let's hear what he says about the 2020 vision plan. Some of the things that the city had had made a commitment to based on adopting the plan was the redevelopment of Taylor Homes, the moving of the, poli- of the f- police station to Best Street, uh, the reconnection of the uh, Thelma Bull Bridge, um, significant investments in streetscapes along North 4th Street, um, some park improvements that included the Archie Blue Park, uh, which was a pretty significant investment, uh, 
the reconnecting or the um, Love Grove Bridge at a cost of about $6 million. The overall number of investments that the city made in that particular part of town was close to $100 million. And of course, when you make that kind of significant investment, it, it attracts obviously private investment that also has come into the area because of the improvements that were made. That sounds pretty good. I think it was for the most part. Those changes are things the community explicitly asked for in meetings the city held at the time, but the neighbors also opposed redevelopment. They wanted affordable housing, but they wanted to maintain neighborhood character. And with hindsight, we can see that that didn't happen the way some probably hoped. Yeah, lots of homes and vacant lots were replaced with new houses, and they're selling for $400,000 or more sometimes. Not exactly affordable to longtime residents. The median household income in the two census tracts on the north side went up double or more, just as the white residents are flooding in. Both tracts are now less than 50% black when they were both more than 85% black neighborhoods, according to the 1990 census. Okay, so that investment brought displacement. Yeah. I don't think the city planned for that to happen. They invested in home ownership help and other programs for low-income people at the time. They've put $52 million into affordable housing across the city since 2001. Okay, but then why are people still being displaced? Well, the city's revitalization plans worked incredibly well. Now, those neighborhoods are super desirable, and a lot of people want to live there. There's not enough housing, partially because neighbors asked that it stay low density back in the 2000s, and so economic pressures are dramatically shifting what the neighborhood looks like today. I mean, we even saw an article in 2014 when I looked through the archives uh, from Star News talking about the major changes in the north side, with breweries and other businesses taking hold. And unfortunately, the businesses that came, these bars and event spaces, weren't the sort to meet the daily needs of longtime residents. In the 2020 plan, they had asked for laundromats and pharmacies, things like that. But they didn't get those kinds of businesses. And some of the human investments that they asked for, like a job center and a human resources center, those ideas, they fell apart. Youth programs like Voyage and Dreams made it through, though. Here's Mayor Sappho again. We do not want to see everybody pushed out of a community because they can't afford to. But there, it's, it's, it's also very challenging. We live in a capitalistic society. As a property owner, you can sell your property or you can rent your property at whatever price you want to. Um, and we understand that concept also. So city policy worked and led to private investment. But now the growth is happening really, really fast and leaving people behind. That's exactly it. And the city's programs, while beneficial, can't really keep up with the severity of the need. The North Side isn't a neighborhood in a vacuum. It's part of a city that's facing a severe housing crisis. It's just hitting this neighborhood particularly hard because it's uniquely vulnerable. It's a historic, walkable neighborhood near downtown, which makes it very desirable for new residents. And it's also been underinvested for a very long time. So the existing residents there are uniquely vulnerable to displacement. And that's the case on the South Side, too. Gee whiz. Well, thank you for explaining all this to me, Kelly. Thanks for coming in to be my audience stand-in, Cammie. You're welcome. <laughs> all right, that's the history of the North Side and some of the context for what's going on now. But in our next segment, we'll dig into the data Cape Fear Collective pulled together and hear what it feels like to experience gentrification on the ground. Stay with us. <laughs> You're listening to the newsroom from WHQR Public Media. I'm Kelly Knoyer. Thank you for joining us. 
We are talking about gentrification this hour, particularly in downtown Wilmington. I've been focusing on the north side so far, and there's a reason for that. No, it's not because I live there. It's because that's where the slow motion, quote, avalanche of gentrification started. Dante Haywood is a data analyst at Cape Fear Collective. He's the one who coined that avalanche metaphor because it's what he's seeing in the analysis he's run using census data for downtown Wilmington. Metaphorically, it'd be sort of like an avalanche. I think it's important to note that um, definitely in the past five, six, seven years, this process has really sped up. This wave of gentrification started first in the North Side or the Brooklyn Arts District. One census tract at the very north end of the city saw a 70% increase in population in the past decade, and median household income has more than doubled in that time. That's faster than 99.9% of census tracts in the entire state. Once a black neighborhood, the two census tracts on the north side have both seen their black populations fall below 50%. Other racial groups are moving in, primarily white people, but also multiracial Hispanic and Asian residents. That's partially because the area has recently seen so many investments from the city, which were followed by business investments. As we see in the data, right, we all know that um, housing and rent has increased dramatically. Um, and I think th the challenge is it's sort of crept up on us, right? Um, but it hasn't really been creeping. This is a decade, generational long process that has been happening. It's a catch-22, he says. The city invests to help those residents, but those investments draw economic change, which drives them out. What's more, we're seeing these same trends coming for the rest of downtown. It's happening on the north side, and the process is continuing, but the south side is next. The gentrification to the north sort of happened the slowest, but it would seem or suggest in the data right now that the gentrification is increasing rapidly. Whereas with the north side, we sort of had some time to figure it out. Um, but with some of these other neighborhoods, we might not necessarily have the same amount, you know, the decade sort of transformation that we had been seeing. The south side between Market and Queen Streets saw the average income spike by $20,000 in the last decade, and 60% of the residents there are housing burdened. That may seem counterintuitive, but it essentially means a small number of very rich people have moved in, driving up home prices, which is putting pressure on the surrounding homes. The data is already showing low-income residents are moving out, and further east, the pressure is beginning to build in a similar way. But how does that feel on the ground, and what does gentrification really look like? On Cedric Harrison's Wilmington in Color tour, he pointed out several blocks where you could see brand new ticky-tacky homes right next to old shotgun houses. And it's not just housing. Driving down 4th Street, I do wish that it was a certain area that was dedicated to making sure that black business owners got access to this space um, because this was a space that was majority occupied with black businesses from cobblers, bakers, eating houses, um, furniture stores, and many more. And, and now all we have is a uh, chicken in the box restaurant and a convenience store. And then the rest of this block all belongs to majority white owners and individuals that are from from out of town, you know. A lot of new businesses have cropped up on 4th Street in the past 10 or so years. Bumbalati's Ice Cream, Pallet Bottle Shop, 310 Restaurant, but many of these are expensive and aimed at a richer demographic. Princess Street is going through a similar change right across from the Northside Food Co-op. 
And while new residents love all the breweries and restaurants, they're also not the kinds of businesses residents asked for in 2003, the laundromats and grocery stores and pharmacies that would serve their daily needs. Sierra Washington is the project manager at the co-op and says some businesses have worked to fundraise with her, but still. They're receptive to hearing what this community used to be, and they're receptive to working with the community organizations. But at the same time, the audience that they're continuing to draw in within our Northside community is not representative of the Northside community. So you have a lot of outsiders coming in. And so, like, for example, um, our building, our home base at 1019 Princess Street is right across the street from Highwire and Cugino. And when we first started as an organization at 1019 Princess Street, Highwire was not there, Cugino was not there. So we, over the last year and a half, have seen a huge change on Princess Street in terms of the business, but also the population of people that come. You can hear more from that conversation in last week's episode. It's worthwhile because Sierra and her colleague Quaylen Bowen are very insightful. And it's not just businesses moving in, of course. There are new neighbors that come as well. I met Donald McCoy at the co-op's Saturday Farmer's Market. You can hear the music bumping in the background. He's lived right down the block for 30 years. But around here, you know, a lot of whites come in and they express, especially around here, they know that we call them poor white. Because you move in this neighborhood, you don't have a lot of money. You're just like us, you know. So they come in and they, they understand what goes on. They frequent our stores, the corner stores, and you know, they run and jog, and sometimes their kids be out here, a couple of white people stay here, and they let the kids play with our kids, and you know, that's special. Yeah. You know, that's how it's supposed to be. So some folks move in and fit the economic class of the place they're moving to, or it's at least close. Others, not so much. Evelyn Bryant is a longtime community advocate, born in Wilmington in the 1960s. She's watched the North Side change over the decades and gave several examples of white neighbors moving in, then causing trouble for black residents. One confronted a man for being in the neighborhood. Another called the police on a man playing music on his porch. You know, it bothers me that there are people that do come into the community and don't know the community, and then they try to... I, I really don't know, <laughs> to be honest. I, I had an incident where lady had been living. She had just moved into the community. It had been about two months. And I had some family that was over at my house. And instead of her coming and asking who, if anybody's car was blocking her driveway, she came she came with this story about she wanted to introduce herself and you know i felt some type of way about it because if you wanted to introduce yourself you could have done it when you first moved in but then it became the issue well i just needed to find out if y'all was blocking my driveway and that's the last conversation i've had with her and that's been uh a year ago a little over a year ago so how the neighbors move in really matters but whether rich new neighbors are nice or not doesn't matter when their very presence changes the property values, increasing the tax burden on longtime residents. Or that their very presence draws up the rents or causes landlords to convert to Airbnbs. Sierra Washington lost her last house to the short-term rental game. After she was forced out of her downtown home at the end of her lease, she checked up on the listing. A month later, the all three levels of the house that we were staying in were on Airbnb, and he was charging like $3,000 for the space. 
And I want to tell you, my apartment, we were living in the basement of that historic home. It was less than 900 square feet. And he's charging $3,000 per level of that house. So it's like, that happened to me. That happened to our friend Lily. That happened, like, all of these homes that people have been staying in and renting for years, decades. are They're kicking people out when we already have an affordable housing problem. But where are people going when they're displaced? And what opportunities exist for those who remain? Some people have moved to Brunswick County. Uh, and, and that's the thing, you know, being able to find a, another place that they can afford to live. I, I don't know. I just feel like we are more reactive than proactive. And it's, it, it's time for us to be more proactive than reactive. Bryant says her own kids aren't staying in Wilmington, even though she's been here her whole life. Even with, I look at a younger generation, kids that go off to school, and it's interesting because my my oldest daughter is getting ready to move to Charlotte. They don't want to live here. There's nothing here. And they can't afford to live here because the rent, even though, and this is my child that has graduated. Um, she got her degree in public health administration and went on and got her master's in public health administration and still can't afford to live here. When residents say gentrification feels violent, these are the experiences they talk about. Feeling like they have no control over their community, like they don't even recognize it anymore. And sure, the new businesses are better than the empty storefronts that may have been there in the 80s and 90s, but that doesn't mean they feel all that welcome in those shops. Perhaps the quintessential example of the shift in the north side is the Brooklyn Arts Center. In the 2003 plan, the city planned to make it into a community arts center and event space. That effort failed. The nonprofit couldn't get the funding for renovations. But one of the people involved, Dave Nathans, fought to repair the building. The current owner of the BAC, Jay Tatum, tells the story. Dave, early on, had identified like this area of downtown as, or at least the Brooklyn neighborhood, he felt like if the church here was brought up and then every, things would happen around it, which has happened that way, you know. I mean, think about it in 2008, like that was taking a huge swing. And I don't know if you ever were able to see this place. I, I grew up here, I was born and raised, so I can remember seeing the Brooklyn Arts Center, or the St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church when it was in disrepair. The city estimate at the time was that it would cost $4 million to repair the building, a huge effort. And afterwards, Nathan and then Tatum wanted to make sure they could keep the building up. They had to find a profitable use for the historic church, so it became a wedding venue. Tatum says the BAC is a major foothold for redevelopment in the north side, especially on 4th Street. To me, I feel like just this being here, everybody's taking a chance on the Brooklyn neighborhood. And not only just the business side of it, if you go around the building over to Fifth Street, there's new homes that are being remodeled and new homes are being built. And there's just things that are happening around here, you know, that wasn't happening, you know, 20 years ago. Um, Now are definitely blooming and blossoming and doing well. Tatum says he opens the space up for nonprofits sometimes, holds community events like concerts during the off-season, but he's there to make money and preserve the building. And that means bringing vendors and hundreds of wedding guests to the venue every weekend. That can lead to guests acting as bad neighbors, but he does work as hard as he can to make sure the neighborhood is treated with respect. I asked one neighbor about it. I met Julius James on his porch one sunny afternoon. He's lived there for 25 years. Uh, For the most part, you know, uh, he's doing the best he can. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you can't control the constituents which you serve all the time so you can't look at the owner for some of it but you can look at how they respond to things that are said and for the most part he's been pretty responsive He's glad the church isn't falling down anymore, but his house is heavily impacted by living right next to a wedding venue. As we chatted on his porch, we watched a group of young white men greet each other and move into the little cottage Tatum has turned into an Airbnb across the street. You know, it's it's better than an abandoned building, but, I mean, I think that you take into account that many of the, the new buildings and things occurring that brings about uh, certain uh, libations and stuff like that that may not be as desirable in this area and sometimes it causes our our properties to be uh, littered on in different aspects and sometimes um, you know uh, you know the crowd the noise um, which isn't real, real bad to me, but I know that some other my neighbors have have said but the litter is a can be a, a an uptick of a problem where sometimes just the respect of somebody else's house and property isn't taken into account. But James says gentrification is not just black and white. It's more of a class issue. Many fail to to realize and understand that uh, there there are a lot of white people that are not making it either that have been drawn driven out. Of here too, yeah. It's probably county. right. It's probably not to the level. You could almost make it north versus south, if anything, because it's yes. all the northerners coming down, right? Yes, <laughs> yes, and 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 uh, they got big money. Yeah, I mean they they worked uh, higher paying jobs up there, and if you want to look at it like there, they're they're almost being run out from the north because I know how it is up there. I asked some advocates about how they'd like to address gentrification, and it's a tough question. I spoke with lowercase leader Brandon Cagle at the Northside Food Co-op about what he wanted to see. They should have made an intentional effort to, um, to understand affordable housing and put affordable housing um, uh, safety measures in place, like so that you know we can address the housing crisis that's happening. There's a, a huge backlog of, of of housing vouchers where people are, are not able to get into um, uh, Taylor Homes or into the, the, the Wilmington Housing Authority because there's it, maybe a 2,000 application backlog or something like that. But he's not happy seeing the fancy apartments by the riverfront either, especially since they block the view from the 1898 Memorial on 3rd Street. Do you think the apartment buildings are the problem? They're not affordable. So, I mean... Um, so you wanted, like, like, like low-income housing tax credit kind of style development there? Um, somewhere. Um, I mean, if you're going to block the, the view of the river from uh, of the memorial, which the it's just centered to the memorial, then get, make it something that's you know that the people can be a part of. Um, the people can afford to live there. Make, make, uh, create... Um, other opportunities for people that can be done, more job opportunities. I don't think, um, I think the effort was just like, let's, let's bring in developers to this town and see what they can do to this town. So he wanted to see more affordable apartments go in. That's something a lot of modern advocates ask for. They know the housing crisis won't be solved by the single-family homes their predecessors sought in 2003. Still, those big apartment complexes on the river serve some purpose. When Dante Haywood from CFC looked at that census block, he didn't see displacement. When we're looking at 
um, moving to sort of the western side um, to the river, um, we're looking at Front Street and sort of the downtown area. Um, this place has had some of the most change, right? It's the urban center, so it's a city, it's going to change. Um, but there also hasn't been the clear displacement of low-income individuals. A lot of folks who see those fancy buildings go up assume they drive up rents just because the rents there are higher. But Clayton Hammerski from the Keep for Housing Coalition points to a different theory. An economist by the name of Noah Smith um, called it the yuppie fish tank theory. And I think that that's a really cool <laughs> moniker for it. But the idea is if you sort of build these options um, for would-be gentrifiers to, to go and live in, um, you're, you're kind of necessarily taking away from opportunities to gentrify. Uh, I think a good example is maybe River Place down here. Um, if you build River Place, this is uh, 92 units or whatever it is um, that are, you know, if folks were planning on gentrifying on McCray Street or, or wherever, this is a different option for them to go to. Coming up next on the newsroom, how do we solve gentrification? Is it even possible? Stay with us. You're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR Public Media. I'm Kelly Knoyer. And I'm News Director Ben Schockman. Thank you for joining us. And thank you for joining me, Ben. Uh, I kind of wanted to bounce some ideas off of you in this last segment of the hour because gentrification is a big problem in the community, but we love to find solutions to problems. Yeah. So we were talking in the newsroom about sort of breaking this down in the different levels at which we could approach solutions or mitigations for the process of gentrification. So let's start at the individual level. As far as people who are actually already moving into these neighborhoods, these historically black neighborhoods, if you are a white neighbor moving in, uh, Tim Joyner, who's one of the lowercase leaders in town, that was um, the movement here for the Black Lives Matter protests. This is what he said about it. When you go into somebody's house, you respect their house common sense. So why are we not applying this to the neighborhoods? So basically, be nice to your neighbors. Treat people like they're your neighbors and like you're part of a community, not like you just have your own house and it happens to be in that neighborhood. You know, this reminds me of one of the, you know, I, I lived at Fifth and Red Cross and then I, I moved to New York City and then I, I moved back. Um, and the first time I went to the North Side after moving back was to a show at the Brooklyn Art Center. And to be frank, I remember being embarrassed about the conduct of the guests of the show. And I, I'm not laying this at the feet of the owners of the BAC. It just it was definitely a predominantly, if not all, white audience. Um, the show ended. It was dark out. And people were kind of making sport of running to their cars, talking about what a bad neighborhood they were in. There was a one grandmother who lived right in the building right next to the BAC who was watching this happen, watching people talk about what a – lousy neighborhood it was or what a potentially dangerous neighborhood. And I was, uh, it was cringeworthy, doesn't cover it. I mean, this is really embarrassing. Yeah. If you're going to patronize a business that's within a neighborhood, you should treat that neighborhood with respect because you're not just going to that business. You're going to the neighborhood. Okay. So what about developers? Because again, people have the legal right to buy property and renovate it, redevelop it wherever they want, wherever they can get their hands on property. And certainly there are blighted blocks that could use redevelopment. So 
I didn't take this to be a screed against development, but how can people, if if they were interested, develop ethically or develop in a way that maybe mitigates some of these negative side effects of gentrification that you've been researching? Well, one thing I'll say is that developers have a lot of influence politically in this town. and they You can, don't say. <laughs> you don't say. And so they could use their influence to try and advocate for policies that would spread some of this redevelopment to other neighborhoods. So if a developer... Uh, is able to build a duplex or a triplex in downtown, but not in Midtown. Maybe they go to city council and say, I'd like to be able to build these things in Midtown. And I know there are people who have an appetite for this in Midtown. Why don't you make it so that I can do the same kind of redevelopment everywhere? The other thing is with infill, don't just flip a house that's already in decent condition. Instead, maybe tear down a derelict building um, and replace it with something more dense. So instead of putting one single family house or McMansion on the same lot, do a duplex or a triplex. There's a number of different options that are allowed in the downtown area. And if you build something more dense and then rent it, because it's more more units on the same lot, they tend to be more affordable. And they tend to take less infrastructure to be built um, on that same amount of property. So they're naturally occurring affordable housing, this missing middle. And so it makes it so that the neighborhood is still accessible to people of a variety of income levels. Okay, but let's talk about something that we're a bit more familiar with, which is looking at what governments do. What can local government do about this? Okay, so let's start with the city level. There's the possibility of a short-term rental ban, and that would be basically preventing Airbnb and Verbo from existing by zoning. They can do it based on residential zoning in all of Wilmington. And that's something that could prevent a lot of naturally occurring affordable housing from coming off of the marketplace. And that's actually something I've heard from advocates, both in places like the North Side, but also like affluent white neighborhoods like the historic district in downtown, uh, in downtown Wilmington, like the residents of old Wilmington have been pushing the city so far unsuccessfully. Um, to try again at banning short-term rentals since the first go-around didn't really go that well. Yeah, the main thing is that you have to actually make it a full ban by zoning, and that's something that Asheville and Raleigh have done, so we know it can be successful. It may or may not happen because they're a little gun-shy. Another thing that they could potentially do is just upzone across the board, not just in downtown, which is currently where upzoning has occurred. That would mean they can develop things that are not just a single family home on a single family lot. They could do triplexes and duplexes, et cetera. Uh, If they expanded that to every neighborhood in Wilmington, it would make it so some of the redevelopment pressure was taken off of the downtown area, and it would make it so more missing middle housing would crop up in other neighborhoods. And one of the things you've also been schooling me on is the way in which seemingly unrelated zoning issues in, say, the northern part of New Hanover County have a direct impact on what's happening in the north side. So basically, not enough housing. Uh, people get squeezed out of where they were. They go where they can find places to live, which sometimes means gentrification in the north side. But it's almost—it's not exactly, but it's almost single-family housing all over the unincorporated parts of the county, you were telling me. Yeah, exactly. It's not that it's zoned specifically for single-family homes. It's that the county limits the number of units to two and a half for an acre. And that's essentially as dense as single-family zoning would be. So if they wanted to change that and make it so you could build a lot more dense in every other part of the county, it would make it so that there could be a lot denser production in other regions, which would help mitigate the housing crisis, since we'll be 20,000 units short by the end of the decade. And it would probably take some of that pressure off of some of the historic buildings in the downtown area. Here's a trickier one. Gentrification isn't just about housing costs and density. It's also about, I don't know, the, the feel of a neighborhood, the cultural part of this problem. So is there anything, say, the city of Wilmington could do about that? 
So definitely the city trying to stabilize people who are already in their homes there, um, trying to help with renters, supporting them with uh, the costs that come with refurbishing a house, um, either for homeowners or for renters. That's something that they can do. They already have programs for that, but more funding from the county or from the city for those programs would make a big difference. Uh, And making them grants rather than loans would help people feel more secure accepting that kind of help. Because if you're on a fixed income as an elderly person, it's kind of difficult to take it. I also get the sense that not everyone knows about these programs. That's right. Uh, this They could advertise them more. Uh, I know that, for example, when the city inspection office is looking through different buildings, they'll let them know about some of these programs. But I know that some of these streets, you can see broken windows from the street, and it's just not ever been addressed. Nobody's ever made a complaint. So if the city just took a little tour around and saw people who might need help and offered it, I'm sure people would be very happy to take it. And it would stabilize them in the neighborhood and make them feel cared for by the government. Um, I'll also say that the city could try and invest in community events. They've already kind of done that by funding the Northside Food Co-op, but they could go even further, make this something that's happening on the South Side. I know folks who work for the Northside Food Co-op would like to bring those community dinners to other neighborhoods, and that does build a lot of community cohesion and makes people feel a little more in control of what's happening to them. Also, they could provide representation for tenants in court. This is something that is provided in a lot of cities. Uh, Tenants usually don't have any legal representation when they go to court if they're being evicted, and landlords usually do. So if you were to have built-in legal representation for tenants, it would limit the number of evictions that were occurring within the city, and it would help tenants a lot when it comes to being displaced from their homes. So those are some of the major things that we can see in local government. Um, Also, helping clear title for air properties. There's a lot of different things that could help. The main thing, though, funding. So, yeah, funding. I mean, it does sound like there are pilot-esque programs or long-running but underfunded programs. Um, I I don't think we can get away from it to, to move the needle on this stuff, whether it's housing affordability or dealing with homelessness or dealing with the impacts of, let's just say, capitalism on, you know, historically black neighborhoods, it costs money. Yeah. uh, I mean, local governments have done some investments into things like low-income housing tax credit projects like Starway. uh, And those are good things to do, giving the land, giving a little bit of money. But the money that they've given hasn't covered all of the bases. We needed $9 million from the federal government to make that project pencil out. So bigger swaths of money available for these new developments would go a long way. And then giving away land from that the city and the county own in the downtown area would make it so the affordable housing that they do build using LIHTC would be in the neighborhoods that are currently seeing displacement. Those are some of the major things that municipal and county government could do if they wanted to try and prevent gentrification. Okay, uh, I know we're running out of time. So let's talk about the state level, because a lot of times when we have these conversations, I feel like we run into a brick wall of one state law or another. Yeah, so we have a state that basically only gives municipalities and counties the rights that it dictates they have. That's Dillon's rule, right? Dillon's rule. We have a pseudo Dillon's rule state. So a lot of stuff is up to the legislature. And I was really excited to see that the Cato Institute was holding this affordable housing policy discussion because this is a libertarian think tank. They had uh, legislators, they had developers at the state level coming in and talking about this really seriously and talking about upzoning, talking about all of these policies that I've discussed in multiple newsrooms. 
So the state has a lot of options. Uh, one thing that we heard from Tim Mitten at that Cato Institute thing, he's the executive vice president of the NC Home Builders Association. He talked about how uh, zoning can have implications for the cost of a development. Zoning is obviously the biggest challenge. Um, our study showed 24% of the cost of a house is regulations. So Cato Institute probably wants deregulation. That's kind of like the libertarian thing. Uh, but that is a good point. Uh, cities sometimes have metrics that are based on what a building looks like or some other requirements, setbacks. There are ways that the city could cut back on some of those things. And that's something that at the state level could be administered. Talking about zoning. I want to play this clip from a PhD student named Jenna Davis, who I talked to. Um, she did some research up in New York City. Areas that had been upzoned uh, were associated with an increased likelihood of the share of non-Hispanic white households increasing. The specific upzoning policies that I had looked into didn't include provisions that would mandate that neighborhoods that um, experience that upzoning have mandatory inclusionary housing, so units that are specifically reserved for uh, below market rate units. Basically, the finding of her study was that redeveloping one neighborhood but not the surrounding neighborhoods led to displacement. But that was not necessarily the case if there were inclusionary zoning policies or if the surrounding areas were also redeveloping at the same rate. She didn't have research on that. That's something that's still being studied by public policy wonks. But what I will say is that inclusionary zoning, that is a policy that you cannot legally mandate in North Carolina at this time, but it's something that you could incentivize. And what that is, is if you're building an apartment building, the city requires you or asks you to make a certain percentage of the units of that building affordable for people who make 60 percent or 80 percent of the area median income. Also, the state could push for uh, allowing for rent control. That's something that is not allowed currently at the state level. You cannot have that at any municipal level. And so if they wanted to, they could make that an option for municipalities if they desired it. And same for inclusionary zoning. They could make it so that cities can choose to require a certain percentage of units be affordable. Um, I'm not sure how politically viable all of those options are with our current legislature, but they are options. I would say, you know, with any legislator, it would be tough because the property rights and development lobbyists have a lot of sway and it's sort of a core value of a lot of people who live in this state is that they believe they have the right to do whatever they want with their own land. And we've seen people go to the mat in court for that over and over again. So I do think it's important that if we're going to have this conversation that maybe the libertarian lens is the right one if for no other reason than it brings property rights people and housing advocates together on the same page and at least they're having open, honest dialogue. Absolutely. And one other thing that I heard repeated over and over again at the Cato Institute was upzoning across the entire state. This is something that was done in Oregon, and it made it so every city has banned single-family zoning. You can no longer require that a neighborhood is only single-family houses. And that's something that's making it so that the NIMBY picture is just wiped off the map. You can no longer have neighbors coming into a city council meeting and saying, I just don't want a triplex in my neighborhood. I don't want those kind of people here. That is off the table at this point in Oregon. And that's something that the state level could do. And it benefits property owners because now they're allowed to do more with their property when previously they had been banned by the city and the county government from doing that kind of thing. 
And then the last thing I want to bring up is air properties. This is an extremely thorny issue. Do you want to explain what those are really quick? Sure. So these are properties where um, there's a deed to the house and it should have been passed down um, after the original owner passes away. But basically the line of succession, if you will, is unclear and it's not it's it's no longer legally clear who the heir to the property is or that person can't be found. Yes. So this is something where at the city level, if they wanted to help people set up wills, it would be a major benefit. But I also think that it's worth pointing out that when these houses do eventually get significant liens on them and uh, get turned over to auction, the city has to automatically put them up for auction and it can't go to nonprofits first. The city can't turn it into affordable housing. That's something that's dictated at the state level. And the state could make it so that those properties instead go to the government or instead go to nonprofits. And that would make it so that instead of them being flipped for profit, they could become affordable housing again. Um, and that's a solution that hasn't been talked about a lot that I've heard. So there's a ton of supply side stuff that we've talked about. We could probably do an entire other podcast about fixing the other half of this, which is about giving people the economic power to afford housing. But that might have to wait for 2023. You mean increasing the minimum wage? I mean, 2023. All right. Uh, well, thank you, Ben. I appreciate you coming on. Happy to do it. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of The Newsroom. Thank you to all the community advocates, residents, and policy wonks who helped me tell this story and learn about solutions to the problem. And a special thank you to Dante Haywood and Cape Fear Collective for their data analysis. I'd also like to thank Ben Shockman for chatting about solutions and Camille Mojica for talking history and for all her help on production for this episode. Our WHQR technical team is Ken Campbell and Jonathan Furnell. If you missed part of this program, you can find it at whqr.org. You can now also find it as a podcast wherever you get podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Kelly Knoyer. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom.